0: into our SMA StratCom Academic Alliance Speaker Session entitled A Stable Nuclear Future, the Impact of Autonomous Systems and Artificial Intelligence. And I'd also like to thank today's speaker, Dr. Michael Horowitz, for taking the time to present today. So, everyone the style then received his bio and his slides, which I sent out in the event reminder. Um, and if you haven't received these materials, feel free to email me, and I'll make sure to send those over to you. Um, no, we're, you're going to be referencing the event reminder and not the initial invitation, so please look to that for the slides and bio. Okay, i uh, to introduce today's speaker before I turn the floor over to him. Dr. Michael Horowitz is the interim director of Perry World House and a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of the award-winning book, The Diffusion of Military Power, Causes and Consequences for International Politics. And so Dr. Is- Horowitz, the floor is yours. Sorry, everybody. Uh, apologies for the technical difficulty on my uh, on my end working at home and what the technical capabilities of some parts of our house look like. Uh, I'm delighted to be here to uh, to talk about the paper that uh, I wrote with Paul Shari and Alex Fellas-Green, A Stable Nuclear Future, the Impact of Autonomous Systems and Artificial Intelligence. And if you go to the second slide, uh, we have a picture of Stanislav Petrov, who many describe as the man who saved the world. And and in some way, that motivated uh, this paper. You know, everybody I think is familiar with the Petrov incident in nineteen eighty-three when he detected a when a system that he was nuclear system he was monitoring detected an incoming US nuclear attack. And his response, rather than reporting the nuclear attack to the superiors, he used his judgment and reported an error that there was a system malfunction. And the concern that many people have about the application of artificial intelligence to nuclear weapons systems, among other things, is that a future Petrov might not use that judgment to report an error, might trust an AI too much, or alternatively, that there wouldn't be a Petroff uh, in the first place. And this paper is designed to explore uh, that, uh, that idea. And if you go to the next slide, uh, slide number three, it lays out an overview overview of the presentation I'm going to talk very, very briefly about some of the work that I'm doing, about the theory associated with this uh, paper, and then go through three areas where we can imagine applications of AI and robotics uh, that could have consequences for nuclear weapons. I'll talk about early warning and command and control, uninhabited nuclear platforms, and then how conventional military applications of AI could affect strategic stability. And And then we'll wrap up. So uh, to start uh, now on slide four, uh, go, laying out my my research agenda uh, through a couple of the things I'm working on uh, that this paper. A lot of my work today focuses on how emerging technologies are shaping global politics, uh, specifically uh, AI and robotics. Part of that is very present focused, but a piece of that is illustrated by the picture here of a global telegraph network. It's historically focused, looking at how Previous uh, eras of general technologies shaped economic and military power, and what that means for global affairs. The the second picture on this slide, uh, you have a sort of classic, like if you Google like robots killing things, kind of, or drones killing things, you know, this is one of the images that comes up. Uh, This uh, relates to a project focused on the diffusion of the precision strike complex uh, around the world and what that means for the future of U.S. military power. Third picture here taken from a New York Times cover in during the Cuban Missile paper, looking at how uh, AI and autonomous systems could shape nuclear stability. Fourth picture with a, is a picture of a a, a toy robot that the, the activist group, the campaign to stop killer robots uh, uh, put in front of the um, you know put in London at one point uh, is designed to to the, the signal research I've been doing on public attitudes. Concerning Autonomous Weapon Systems and Other Applications of uh, AI. Fifth picture here is a, this is a Chinese drone and looks at work I've done on the proliferation of drones and how those fact affect stability around the world. And the final picture is one of the earliest automobiles. It's an early Belgian World War I uh, automobile. And that, uh, in line with that project on the Telegraph, uh, this is a paper that looks at of military adoption of the combustion engine in the late 19th and early 20th century as a as a sort of historical analog to examine some of the about whether mills will be too fast or too slow when it comes to the adoption of AI uh, for military purposes. If you skip to the next slide, uh, slide number five, I just wanna point out the key role that the Minerva Research Initiative has played in enabling uh, my work uh, in the more, in the work of many others, the, uh, this paper was in part funded by a grant I have from the Minerva Research Initiative, which has also been very helpful in giving me uh, access to key stakeholders and people to uh, to talk to about about some of these insights. I think that the research that's come out of this initiative has been very important for uh, understanding American military power. Now to dive into the paper section uh, of bias uh, capabilities and interest in AI. So we go to slide seven. I want to clearly differentiate between uh, robot between remotely piloted systems and autonomous systems. And that you know both fall under a broad umbrella that we care about. One exception that I'll talk about in the paper. What I'm talking about here are systems that are autonomous. Some of which might be more like expert systems, and some of which might be more like uh, machine learning uh, neural nets. And I'll, I'll get into that where appropriate. You turn to slide eight. I think this you know, of course, raises the question of what we mean when we talk about autonomous systems and artificial intelligence. And slide nine uh, lays out what I mean by that, and that I think about AI as the use to simulate human behavior that requires intelligence. And of course, there are different methods of AI that researchers have used uh, over time and thought about over time. You have neural nets, machine learning, the symbolic versus connectionist debate. I mean, really. From my perspective, in some ways, uh, AI, you know, there's a reason why if you look at 10 different AI textbooks, you get 10 different definitions. And that's because AI is often the thing that we can't do, because once we figure out how to do something, we call it programming or call it software. But in the present, we have these discussions. Most of the types of AI that we talk about are, uh, are narrow you know, art, uh, applications of AI designed to do something very particular as opposed to artificial general intelligence or uh, super intelligence. So what do we mean, what are we talking about when we talk about AI? If you turn to slide 10, see at the top of the slide, say AI is an enabler, not uh, a weapon. Forward, you see that, you know, what are things AI can do? It it directs physical objects, you know, helps you process data, maybe as a decision aid, if you think about um, uh, decision aids for commanders on the battle, actually, but it's, It's not a gun. It's not a plane. It's not a nuclear weapon. Uh, That's one reason, actually, why I think some of the analogies people have made between AI and nuclear weapons are probably flawed. So I think about AI as something more broader. I think about it more like a general-purpose technology, something like the combustion engine or electricity. And so then what are the key properties of this? If you turn to slide 11, we're talking about a broad technology, something that's dual-use. You know, this is the opposite in some ways of stealth technology, a technology that militaries invented that only has utility to basically militaries and non-villains, maybe. There's not really commercial applications for stealth. And then something with a low barrier to entry. Of why are militaries pursuing autonomy or artificial intelligence? And there for four reasons that the paper goes through. You have speed, of course, the ability to make decisions faster. And, and get inside the OODA loop of your adversaries. You have precision, the idea that machines that don't get machines don't get tired, machines don't make mistakes, they'll follow their programming, they'll be more accurate. You have issues surrounding bandwidth and hacking. You know, think about the challenges that the US military has had in operating remotely piloted vehicles in some places in uh, in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan and the possibility that those could get hacked. And one solution, for example, in the Pacific, to operating in an access denied or degraded environment might be to cut the data link and operate autonomously. And of course, there's the possibility for decision making. The idea that a machine with access to a little form might be able to make decisions uh, faster uh, and a more, and especially more uh, effectively. But if you turn to slide 13, these systems have downsides as well, they're, they're brittle. Think about the narrow AI systems that we use today, or we think about today, like AlphaGo, uh, AlphaGo Zero, those sorts of things. They're trained to do one thing, and just one thing, which raises lots of questions about you know, how you train them, what data you use, what the quality of that data is, limits the potential areas of operation, the possibility of accidents if they operate uh, outside the areas that you initially deployed them in. And that's even putting aside the possibility that uh, military applications of AI will face attacks, data poisoning, hacking, digital camouflage—all things that adversaries will try to do that make applications of AI even harder than when they're just being done in the uh, in the commercial sector. And the paper goes through this at length. And I think these arguments are pretty well rehearsed for this kind of audience at this point. So if you go to slide 14, what this gets into are these two different theories. That I think we have about how, what trust and confidence in AI could look like. If you advance the slide once, you'll see this notion of a trust gap, the idea that people uh, might not trust machines to do, uh, you know, perform uh, some sorts of tasks. That they, uh, despite an algorithm being intelligent, despite an algorithm having the capacity to do something, people that that lack training on them or expertise might not believe that they have the capacity to uh, successfully operate and so might choose not to use them. But if you advance the slide again, there's another problem in the liter- that the literature identifies, and that's the opposite, which is automation bias, which is trusting machines too much. Here we start to get into the Petrov thing that I'll talk about in a few minutes, where you have the delegation of cognitive judgment to a machine and the failure to question algorithms if they make a mistake. And we have examples of this uh, over the last few decades, the Patriot missile fracture site in 2003, the, the famous Air, uh, Air France crash, uh, et cetera. So the way that this works, uh, I think, for me, theoretically, is if you turn to slide 15, it lays out a, uh, a chart where the the solid line is the perceived effectiveness of an algorithm. The dotted line is the actual effectiveness of an algorithm. And you can see here three distinct periods in time. The first sort of the tech hype cycle, when people think, you know, OMG, the technology is going to be amazing, when actually it's not that great. Theoretically, then, the next sector thing you move into is the is your trust gap place, where the system works, but people don't necessarily trust your algorithm. The problem is that as, as you level off, that reverses. And everybody's trained to believe the algorithm, and then the, risk, then the bigger risk becomes that they trust it too much. And so I think the challenge from an American military perspective is how do we narrow this down? You want perceived effectiveness and actual effectiveness to more or less actually overlap, and if, if not with a little bit of bias toward having the human question the algorithm, to ensure that you don't have cognitive offloading to occur. This raises the question of what it means to take risk in these categories. And slide 17 – sorry, slide 16 uh, outlines our basic prediction uh, in the context of this paper about uh, autonomous systems in the nuclear weapons complex. And that is essentially that as confidence in your second strike capabilities goes goes up, you should be less likely – to adopt exclusively autonomous systems in various parts of the nuclear domain. With the reason being, if you're already confident in your second-strike capabilities, then the relative advantages that you could get from, say, speed or precision or decision-making aren't necessarily worth the brittleness risk. What this suggests is that some of the countries that we should worry about the most when it comes to applications of AI uh, in their nuclear weapons complexes are those that have the most to fear uh, from a decapitation perspective, which is why, if you turn to slide 17, I think the key driver here is competitive pressure and the risk that everybody in the nuclear realm, every nuclear power in the nuclear realm, cues off of somebody else. You know, Pakistan looks to India. India looks to China. China looks to the United States. That almost every nuclear weapon state, with the exception of the U.S. in some ways, has incentives to fully automate, eventually, parts of their nuclear weapons complex because they're not fully confident in their second-strike capabilities. So I now want to uh, jump into potential applications of AI in three different areas of the nuclear weapons complex. If you go to slide 18. And that is, uh, you know, let's start with early warning and command control. Before going into on unha- and then conventional military applications of uh, AI. So slide nineteen actually shows a uh, this is a chart. It's a very early uh, NORAD chart, I believe, from the early '60s, showing uh, some of what our uh, air coverage looked like and you know air uh, control and warning. But we already we already actually have a lot of automation in some of these systems dating back to the Cold War, not like in a Soviet perimeter kind of way. But our existing early warning systems, if you go to slide 20, are actually uh, very automated. Think uh, long-range radar, uh, satellite-based alert systems, uh, rapid retargeting capabilities, you know, et cetera, uh, et cetera. But this already generated risk during uh, the Cold War. If you advance the slide, you'll see that, that call-out box, the Petrov incident that I talked about uh, at, the beginning, uh, of, at the beginning of my presentation. And if you advance the slide again, you'll see uh, a second call-out box, uh, that being the Soviet perimeter system, where of course, the Soviet Union uh, famously allegedly, uh, I guess is probably the right way to to to, to say this, uh, had a system set up so that if their command and control was decapitated, that they could launch uh, some kind of retaliatory strike. That's really dangerous, especially in like a Dr. Strangelove kind of way, if you never really communicated exactly what uh, you uh, were doing. So then, if you go to slide twenty one, why might Somebody want to do autonomous early warning. There's some theoretical benefits here. You could buy it could buy time for decision makers, and autonomous early warning might be more, more reliable. If you don't trust your own people, for example, to make uh, decisions uh, in this in the in in this realm, you think that they might make mistakes. You might want to outsource that those decisions to a machine. Uh, As a side note, this is one reason why some of the most dangerous applications of AI, I worry about uh, autocratic regimes adopting them more because they don't trust their people in the first place. If you advance the slide, you can see the, the theoretical downsides, though. From fully autonomous early warning you have a loss of human judgment, lack of human judgment, and then the way the brittleness of algorithms that we talked about before could lead to false alarms. That's the early warning section. Now, if you turn to slide 22, I wanna talk about something that I think is genuinely a terrible idea, and that is uninhabited platforms with nuclear weapons on them. To advance to slide uh, 23, why might one do this? The theoretical benefits uh, to an, an uninhabited platform, and note, this could be remotely piloted or autonomous, but an uninhabited platform of nuclear weapon, nuclear weapons could could have higher levels of endurance. Could be more reliable. In the background to this slide, you see the uh, of Russia's uh, Status Six program. The the uh, this is that the leak, uh, the sort of what seemed like kind of a deliberate leak by the Russians. To sort of put this uh, out in the public, this was uh, a platform. You know, this is a platform that you know has been discussed in public. Could have the ability to deploy and sort of sit off the U.S. coast, uh, armed with nuclear weapons for for months, uh, if not uh, years. But if you advance the slide, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why countries might not want to do this. After all, you are now losing positive human control over nuclear weapons, which means the consequences of accidents. Hacking and spoofing would be enormous, and the false alarm risk then becomes uh, incredible. And if you turn to slide twenty four uh, and then advance it once to see the two colour boxes, I think this is one reason why you know the, the U.S. military, you know, as, as all of us know, that it, it it's not really uh, that it doesn't like it's not going to do something. You know, we we reserve the right to do everything basically, and for good reasons. Because it's necessary to preserve American security, but I think it's really interesting that that senior U.S. military decision makers, when asked, you know, multiple times about the possibility of uninhabited platforms of nuclear weapons, have generally uh, shot down the idea and said that it'd be tough to do it in a way that's safe uh, and secure. And this is consistent with the theoretical argument that we have in the paper, because. The U.S. has the most secure second-strike capabilities in the world, and thus the need for the U.S. to take risks, you know, the need for the U.S. to gain the benefits of automating you know, of an uninhabited platform of nuclear weapons is, I think, often not seen as worth of the risk. But, but where might one worry a little bit? i turn turned to slide 25, and that's Russia. And the way that Russia's own perception of conventional and nuclear inferiority could encourage them to adopt a less uh, stable launch postures and make them more interested in automation. in in a, in a senior-level statement from Russia in 2012, and then, of course, the, the Russian uh, status-6 system. It's also suggested, if you go to the next slide, slide 26, uh, theoretically – that a country like North Korea, put aside North Korea's technical capacity, that a country like North Korea might actually have a lot of interest in autonomy of all kinds, including uh, un- and that should actually say uninhabited nuclear platforms, not vehicles. Uh, of course, nuclear vehicles are already un- uninhabited. Um, where you have, you know, North Korea fears decapitation. It's a re- it's a repressive regime that doesn't trust its people. They have conventional military inferiority. That'd be another prediction from, from some of the argumentation uh, toward the front of the paper. Now, if you turn to the slide 27, uh, I now want to go to the, the third area that we want to talk about in the con- – that we talk about in the paper in the context of applications of AI to the nuclear weapons complex. And that is how conventional military uses of AI could impact a strategic stability. And if you turn to slide 28, I'm going to break this into two categories. One is surveillance, and then one is uh, speed. So first I want to talk about surveillance, and this interacts with research that uh, Lieber and Press and others uh, have done uh, looking at the potential uh, for uh, advances in AI and robotics to generate uh, counterforce possibilities. In the paper we described that we think that some of these things are actually overblown, that the ability to use AI Uh, a a decapitating counterforce strike just requires too many things to go right. You need so much in the way of real-time tracking of tells, communication back to uh, strike assets, and then the ability to get strikes there fast enough before those tells have moved. And the level of confidence that you would need to launch that kind of strike you in the paper that while there are certainly benefits to surveillance from uh, AI and from some of the predictive modeling that you can do, it's probably not going to be a game changer when it comes to the potential for counterforce strikes. But a thing that we do worry about a lot is the way that increases in speed, if you turn to slide 20, influence strategic stability uh, in the nuclear realm. And this gets to the question: of What militaries would use AI for uh, towards the battlefield? This is moving from things like surveillance, things like early warning, to you know battlefield uses, so things more like some of the lethal autonomous weapon discussion. If you turn to slide thirty, uh, slide thirty uh, is designed to lay out the part in the paper that discusses the discusses the compressed decision cycles that could come from conventional uses of AI. Inside the decision circle of your adversaries means that there's an incentive to operate faster. You want to be able to win faster in a world of AI. But if you can win faster, that also means you can lose faster. And the fear of losing faster, I think, could risk the development of a lot of the things that we associate with uh, dangerous nuclear postures in the Cold War. Think about pre delegation, launch on warning. Or other types of uh, postures, and especially uh, in countries where you have commingling of nuclear and conventional, uh, nuclear and conventional command and control, that means the fear of decapitation, even in a conventional war, could be destabilizing from uh, a nuclear perspective. Again, in general, I actually tend to worry about some of the risks associated with applications of AI. For those of you that know some of my other work, I tend to worry about it a little bit less. Than, than many others, and, and instead think about what the upsides could be from a military power perspective. But this is an area where I have some, some genuine concerns for the way totally reasonable efforts to, to, to utilize algorithms to increase the pace of conflict could lead to fear of decapitation in those dangerous launch postures. Now I want, if you turn to slide 31, uh, I want to uh, wrap up uh, and conclude, uh, since uh, by times and uh, turning to slide 32, uh, the last slide, I think our, uh, the bottom line from the paper, uh, from the presentation, is I think the less secure a country's second strike capabilities, the more a country is likely to consider autonomous systems within their nuclear weapons within their nuclear weapons complex. Whereas the more secure you are, the more a country might be willing, might be more interested in responsibly integrating autonomy. Because you're, you want you want the advantages. Need an early warning, more precision and early warning, but not in a way that, uh, necessarily, uh, <coughs> excuse me, not in a way that would fully offload to machines. This also raises the question of training, though, in that in a future Petrov incident, if what we want is for people to react as he did and report an error, soldiers need to understand enough about these algorithms and how they work that they're willing to, to basically call them out for being wrong, that they're not going to fall prey to automation bias. That's a cognitive issue as much as anything else and a training issue because we need to train people into those sweet spots where they've overcome the trust gap associated with adopting autonomous systems, but don't fall prey to automation bias. And again, uh, the last – some large risks associated with conventional military uses of AI and how they could affect strategic stability. To me, that's not a reason not to invest in these systems. Obviously, that's really important, and I've, I've said that in print in, in, many, uh, in many articles. But I think it's a reason to be concerned in those risks so that our conventional military uses of AI don't end up generating nuclear danger. And with that, I'll stop, and I'm uh, looking forward to uh, questions. All right. Thank you, Dr. Horowitz.